Hello, hello. Welcome to Shout for Libraries. I'm your host, Christina Harback. Every month at Shout for Libraries, we take a look at a different topic in the world of library and information studies. What's new, what's controversial, and what folks need to know about. Today, our correspondent, Jeremy Wilson, is catching up with Michelle D'Augustini. Michelle is currently a public librarian in rural Nova Scotia, but has had many experiences working in prisons. She worked at the Edmonton Institution, which is a maximum security prison, which is what she'll discuss in the interview. Additionally, she also volunteered at the Edmonton Remand Centre. So let's catch up with Jeremy and Michelle and hear all about the ins and outs of prison libraries. So I do just have to ask, first of all, what got you to be interested in prison libraries in the first place? So, I mean, it was a lot of things and it was kind of by accident and yet not by accident at all. So before I even started library school, I was working as a legal assistant at a criminal defense law firm in Edmonton. And I worked there for a really long time. I worked there for like seven years. And, you know, the reason that I ended up in library school in the first place is actually because I did not get into law school. So that is my library origin story. Uh, And library school was my plan B. And while I was in library school, um, I was in a class that I can't even remember the name of now. It's, it hasn't even been that long. You'd think that I'd remember all the classes I took. I don't. <laughs> uh, but I was in a class where there was a presentation from some like quote unquote prison librarians, which was a group of librarians who volunteered in local prisons in Edmonton. And I just remember listening to them talk about it and then listening to like these really disconcerting conversations afterwards because we had broken out into groups in the class and we were talking about prison librarianship and you know some of the folks in my class were like oh that sounds so scary like you're dealing with rapists and murderers and I wouldn't want to work there and I kind of was like I don't know. I feel weird about that. And I can't put my finger on why I feel weird about that. And, you know, after this presentation, I found out that this group that the Greater Edmonton Library Association's Prison Libraries Project, um, they were recruiting volunteers. So I went to one of their volunteer orientations. Um, And at the same time, I think they had posted a position for their treasurer. They're looking for a new treasurer. So I applied to that. Uh, I got the treasurer position. And then I started volunteering. And so when I started volunteering, I was at the Edmonton Remount Center doing um, creative writing workshops for men. And then I moved on to doing those for women at the Edmonton Remount Center. And I was helping out at the Edmonton Institution where they had just started putting together their quote unquote new library, which was actually just all the books that they had, which they had taken out of a storage closet um, and put into a space that they decided was going to be their library. And they were doing that because they had gotten 
grant money to set up a library and they hadn't used the money and they got in trouble from the uh, either the office of the correctional investigator or the um, the commissioner and so we had already the prison libraries project had asked them multiple times hey like do you need help with anything do you want us to volunteer can we come in and do programs and they were like hey can you do stuff with our library and what had happened was they kept putting people in that position that were either teachers or folks that worked in the education department or were correctional officers who were doing like return to work. And so they had no idea like how to build a library from scratch, which is what they were doing. Um, and they were cataloging everything into a new integrated library system from a card catalog which was even worse because they didn't even have everything that was in the card catalog, right? Like half those books were missing or destroyed or whatever. So they needed some help. They needed help with cataloging. They needed help organizing. They needed help weeding. And we were doing that for them. And so how I actually got my job working in prison is that I was volunteering there and um, one of the managers came in while we were volunteering and said, hey, do you know anybody who wants a job? And I was like, me, it's me. I want this job because I was on another contract and my contract was ending and I didn't have any jobs lined up. So I was like, this is perfect. Um, so did I imagine that I was going to be a prison librarian? No, I did not. Uh, did I want to? No, <laughs> not really. But I just kind of like bumbled my way into it. Thank you very much. You're talking a little bit about your experience uh, talking with students and how they're talking about uh, prison libraries. Would you say that's been normal, a normal reaction that you've gotten uh, from other librarians? You know, sometimes yes and sometimes no, right? Like a lot of the reactions I get from other librarians is like, oh, it's like you must be so brave to work in this environment, you're so brave. And I always felt weird about that too, because like, you know, there's nothing really brave about working in prison where, especially a maximum security prison where like, you know, I have gun coverage, like people are gonna get shot if they do something wrong, right? So it's like, I don't have to be brave in that situation, but that's, generally the reaction that I've gotten from other librarians, the other reactions are like, wow, that's so fascinating. You know, tell me more about this amazing subject and wow, like you're doing such great work. And, you know, those sorts of things, which is great. That makes me feel really good. But, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's necessarily helpful either. Our country does not really talk about prisons, like at all. And prison libraries are not even on the radar when we do. So I was wondering, could you walk us through your typical day at a prison library? What are you doing and what are your duties? Yes. So I can really only speak to my experience at the Edmonton Institution, which is a very specific experience. And so it's the first thing I should say is that prison library services vary wildly between institutions. And that's based off of the security 
classification. So the prison that I worked at was a maximum security institution. And I think it is the only solely maximum security institution for men in Alberta. The library itself was closed stack, which meant that nobody could actually browse in the library. Nobody could come in. I was the only person allowed to browse the stacks um, and pull stuff. And so my library patrons had to place holds on items using a very antiquated paper request method and reading off of a catalog, which I would have to print and then fight with IT to put a PDF copy of this catalog onto the standalone computers on the units. So what my job really looked like every day, and I will walk you through from like point of entry to the prison to like actual library services. So I go in to the front and you have to go through one locked door that a correctional officer has to open for you. Then I would have to um, put my cell phone into like a lock box that I would lock up with a key and I would have to run all my stuff through uh, an x-ray machine, kind of like you're going through airport security and I would have to go through a metal detector and, you know, depending on who was working that day, depends, would, you know, say whether that was going to be a really difficult process or a really easy process. Like some days, you know, the metal detector would go off and it'd be fine. Some days they'd be like, do you have your keys? Show me where your keys are, like turn out your pocket. So that was the first part of it. And then I would have to actually walk all the way through the prison to the very back where the gym was because the library at Edmonton Institution is located inside the gym. Um, and so I would have to walk all the way. I'd have to get actually a set of keys, very specific keys first, and then walk all the way to the back and check the mail to see where, like what my hold requests were and reference requests and things like that, because I got a lot of reference requests too. And I was also a commissioner of oaths for the province of Alberta, which was very convenient for the prison. So I'm getting commissioner of oaths requests as well. And so I take my big stack of papers to the back. I would have to go to a control point and ask for another set of keys and then unlock the doors to the gym and lock myself in because they used, there was like three gates basically. And so they were automatic, like electrical controlled gates. And so I'd go through two of them to get to the gym door, unlock, go in and lock again. And inside those gates was where they would hold uh, people in prison who were um, going to visit the doctor or who were attending methadone clinic. They would do the methadone clinic in there. So like to go in, sometimes I'd have to wait for methadone clinic to finish and everyone to leave before I was allowed into my actual workspace. Um, and to leave, it was the same thing. I'd have to call out and say, hey, I'm coming out. And like normally the control people forgot that I was even in there. So it was a great reminder for them, like, hey, I'm doing this work in the library. And then my day would actually start where I'd go through and process all my holds, figure out where I'm going to go. And 
put together my book cart um, and I put it together, organized with the books in piles based off of units, just to make things easier for myself. And then at the regular lockup time, I would go out and start delivering books to these units. And it really was like Shawshank Redemption where I had my book cart with all these holds that people had placed and I'd have to go to each unit and tell the correctional officers, hey, I'm going to see these people, to which the response sometimes was, they're not people, they're cons. And, you know, that's something that you have to deal with a lot too, is that, that type of, I guess the polite way to say it would be othering, that othering and dehumanizing of the people that are in prison. And you have to, to be able to just do your job, do the library work. You have to just kind of ignore that and go in and, you know, then I'd have to knock on cell doors and, you know, say, hey, I have books for you. It's kind of like you're going to somebody's house and you're delivering books to their house. So you might be interrupting them sleeping. You might be interrupting, you know, their day or whatever it is. So it was kind of awkward. Um, and then I'd have to speak to them through, it was a, like obviously a big solid metal door with a tiny window and a food slot. And I would have to pass the books in through the food slot. Um, and then when I was planning programs, a lot of that work was paperwork and going and talking to correctional officers and reminding them, you know, 50 million times, hey, I'm doing a program and waiting for a shift change and making sure that shift change knew that I was doing the program um, because they get very angry if they don't know what's going on, which is, you know, understandable interrupting their whole day. So, Did you say your experience with correctional uh, officers with that sort of othering and dehumanization or with administration in general, would you say that was very typical? So it's interesting because with correctional officers, I would say that it is typical to have them be dehumanizing or have them dehumanize people in prison. And, you know, in a way I get that because they like you would lose your mind doing that job if you had to think of people as people. Do you know what I mean? Because like you would, there's stuff that they have to do that's terrible, right? And it would be really hard to do those things if you thought of the people that you were holding in a place like that as people. So I do understand the othering. I don't think it's right. I think it's terrible. And I think, you know, I wish that there, that there was some sort of reform that would work that would make correctional officers view people in prison as people. But, you know, I don't think that that exists at this time. With administration and like, you know, the higher upper management. And when I say upper management, I'm talking about like warden level and like social programs and, you know, the psychology department and those types of places in prison, because it's all kind of separate. I would say that they at least were trying really hard to like view people in prison as people. And they were also 
supportive for the most part of library services as long as I didn't like I guess jeopardize the safety of the institution which sometimes that meant like not hang, handing out hardcover books. What do libraries do for inmates? I, I feel like that's a loaded question. It is a little. <laughs> so it's a lot, right? Because, okay, so you're providing like the basic, ideally public service model, but we know that it's like not because in the public library, you have access to the internet, you've got technology, you've got like maker spaces and cool stuff that you cannot have in prison. Um, because, you know, it might be a safety concern in quotes. Um, but, you know, you've got that first line, which is just the library service itself. So you've got books as distraction, which like much to every conservative person's chagrin is books as entertainment and distraction before books as like, tools to better oneself or educate oneself or anything like that. It's always books as distraction, then you've got education, then you've got like the law library services. Um, and law library services are really important because there's a lot of people in prison who are self-representing, right? Because they can't afford a lawyer and they can't really get legal aid. Um, and also, just so we're clear, legal aid is not free. It is a loan that you have to pay back. You know, I think a lot of people idealize these, like, free groups that are providing these free services. It's not free. There's a lot of people in prison who are self-representing, and they need adequate law libraries to be able to do that but more than that they need somebody who can actually interpret the information right because law textbooks are really hard <laughs> they're written in a really difficult language um, criminal codes it's the same thing it's really difficult and sometimes you need somebody who can sort of translate those materials and it's not always a librarian either right like you might have to get a volunteer in who's a lawyer who can help uh, with that legal research and then you've got the programs in prison they call this pro-social programs which I don't like <laughs> I don't like anything that they do but they call it pro-social programming which basically is supposed to teach like normal social behavior to people in prison so that when they get out because more often than not it's when it is not if uh they can you know be fully functional members of society and like you know be your friend and your neighbor and like the thing about like actual library programming in prison which you know for the most part is book clubs and Sometimes they have reading programs where like mothers in prison, they'll record a mother reading a children's book and then they send the recording to their kids. Like they do things like that. Those programs are really helping not only to just have like a normal human interaction, but also to have that contact with somebody that's not in prison with them, right? Like somebody that isn't, that doesn't have their entire worldview 
colored by this thing. And I think that that's really important. And a lot of people forget that like just that normal contact being treated like you're a person and being treated like somebody cares, like somebody knows that you exist matters because you're right. Nobody really talks about prison. They're just these like, I guess, it, like imaginary complexes that people have this idea in their head of what it looks like that they get from the media, right? Like prisons are so ingrained in our media, we immediately can picture it in our head. And, you know, the idea is like, you're going to put people away. But the problem with that is there is no away that you can just send the undesirables of society, like they go somewhere. And it's somewhere that is arguably making things worse. It's not making things better. And so, you know, when you're asking me, like, what do libraries do for people in prison? We do a lot, like, even if it's just an escape for people in prison, even if it's just for a normal human interaction, that work matters. And it matters a lot because we see in our studies, because everybody loves numbers and data, that these services actually do reduce recidivism. So they're stopping people from, you know, getting trapped in this cycle of incarceration. And it doesn't reduce it by a lot, right? Like it's only like 18% or something like that. But still, that's something. And it's something that I think we as a society need to really look at. And we need to like, think about that because the system as it is right now is not working, right? Like if people are in a cycle where they're leaving and then going back and leaving and going back, that means that the system is not working. Uh, who do you work with? As uh, Are you the only librarian there or do you work with inmates? So in that particular institution, I worked alone and I was the only librarian. So like if I took any time off, there was no library. So that's problematic, right? Um, in other institutions, there are uh, people in prison who work in those libraries as like, I guess you call it like library assistants. Um, so then they would just be doing like page work, right? Like or surf desk work and things like that. And the librarian would be doing more reference type things and doing the ordering and collections maintenance and all that stuff. So, you know, it really depended on the security classification. You've been hinting at this in, uh, in a number of the other questions, but what is the quality of the library services that you can offer? In a situation like that, like, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, and I probably should not be honest, but I'm going to be honest. That library service that I could offer was truly the worst possible library services anybody could have offered. And it really was only there to make it look like a human rights requirement was being met. Not to actually meet that human rights requirement, but to just make it look like it was being met. And to a lot of people, just providing books is enough, right? Like you've done your job as a librarian when the reality is that's not how it works. 
right? Like there's tons of other stuff that goes into library work and just collections maintenance in general, because, you know, a lot of the comments I would get from certain people in prison is like, well, inmates don't read, they just rip out the pages and use them to smoke or like, you know, they, they're just hiding contraband in the books. And it's like, well, if you're giving them these like garbage books that are falling apart and they're from like 1975 because you haven't updated your collection since 1990. Yeah, like if you don't give somebody a book that they wanna read, they're not gonna use the library. And in a situation like that, they're not gonna use it for the purposes that it's supposed to be there for. So you have to actually make sure that the collection's relevant at least and make it, you know, something that folks would actually wanna use. And so a lot of my time there was just updating the collection and listening to my library patrons and what they wanted and actually acquiring those materials and making sure that at the very least the collection was good, even if they couldn't browse the stacks. That's another problem, right? Like it's not accessible. And a lot of these guys in prison have learning disabilities. They've got print disabilities you know, they're struggling, and then they have to read through this, like, 700-page catalog that, you know, prints in a terrible format, too. Like, it makes it really hard for anybody to look through that. You know, it's not accessible, and so a lot of my job was just, you know, having these guys be like, hey, I really love James Patterson's, like, can you get me books like that, or you know, I want to read about, I don't know, anatomy, let's say, and I'd be like, okay, what do I have in my collection that, like, fits this, and fits this idea, and so I'd have to do a lot of reference work, and we'd have to have conversations, like, what do you like reading, you know, because a lot of the time, be like, I want books about psychology, and I'd have to really narrow that down, because obviously, that's a wide scope. That was part one of a two-part interview with Michelle D'Agostini. Thanks for joining us this month, folks. Tune in next episode for the second part of that interview. We'll close out today with a sneak peek at our upcoming episode. Libraries providing services to people living in incarceration is one thing. But what happens if we place our own institution under the microscope? In what ways do libraries practice the same logics as an incarceral system? Given that they arose from the same society, are these logics themselves an inherent component of traditional library practice? I mean, as community institutions, libraries obviously operate within the context of a community. How is behavior that has been deemed inappropriate for public settings approached? Oftentimes, if behavior arises beyond being a minor issue, public libraries will defer responsibility through ostracization, also known as suspending or banning a community member from a branch or institution, or by turning to incarceral actors such as private security or policing organizations. However, a growing number of libraries are seeking to change this relationship, attempting to move from a punitive or retributive approach to a restorative or transformative one. Since the beginning of this decade, there has been a flurry of activity to incorporate what is often referred to as restorative justice, both in academia and in public practice within libraries. So what is restorative justice? 
one of the first Western thinkers to articulate the concept, Howard Zare, defined it in terms of the guiding questions it asks. In restorative justice, the questions are, who has been hurt? What are their needs? Whose obligations are these? What are the causes? Who has a stake in the situation? What is the appropriate process to involve stakeholders in an effort to address causes and put things right? Whereas, in contrast, traditional criminal justice asks, what laws have been broken? Who did it? What do the offenders deserve? It is very important to mention that Howard Zare credited indigenous peoples for their specific and profound contributions to practices in the field. In particular, he regarded the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island and the Maori as having the longest and most developed traditions of restorative justice that he had come across, saying that, in many ways, restorative justice represents a validation of values and practices that were characteristic of many indigenous groups, whose traditions were often discounted and repressed by Western colonial powers. Colonial institutions have finally begun to acknowledge the effectiveness of these practices and started the process of incorporating them, imperfectly, oftentimes. And libraries are no different. So if libraries take this perspective that, instead of social harms being an offense against an impersonal and arbitrary authoritarian state, that they are a disruption of the social fabric itself and the relationships between people that constitute it, what does a reorientation of library practice look like? The discussion of this shift in library theory can be seen in recently published books like Transformative Library and Information Work, Profiles in Social Justice, by Stephen Bales and Tina Budsize Weaver, and in academic papers like Restorative Justice as a Tool to Address the Role of Policing and Incarceration in the Lives of Youth in the United States by Jeannie Austin, which appeared in the Journal of Librarianship and Information Science. In practice, Canadian libraries with restorative justice initiatives include the Toronto Public Library and the Edmonton Public Library. In next episode, we are lucky enough to have the opportunity to go deeper into this topic by interviewing Tamara Van Beert, one of the principal actors behind the restorative justice pilot at the Edmonton Public Library.